we have spent a little time going into the doctrine of law and the eschatology of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, uh, written two years before the death of John Calvin. I'd like to flesh this out a little by pointing to the developments of uh, these ideas and other reformers uh, down to the great Synod of Dort. And so for want of a better title, I'll call this lecture The Eschatology of Victory from Knox through Dort. Now Calvin's student, John Knox, as you know, was a Scot who returned to Scotland and established Scots Presbyterianism. And uh, it so happens, just to anticipate the future lectures at this point, that in the 19th century, the South African Reformed churches had more Scottish preachers on their pulpit than they had South African-born or Dutch-trained uh, preachers on their pulpit. So as Dr. Willy Jonker, a South African who became a professor of theology in Holland for some years, once said, uh, Scottish Calvinism is a very important ingredient of South African Calvinism. We should not think of South African Calvinism as being Dutch or an extension only of, of Holland. In fact, South African Calvinism uh, is an interesting mix of Scottish Calvinism, Dutch Calvinism, German Calvinism, and French Calvinism, and odds and ends from other parts of Europe, such as Hungarian Calvinism. But to my knowledge, only one American Calvinist ever went to South Africa in the 19th century, and that was a man called Daniel Lindley. He ended up being a pastor of an important group of trekkers, such as the people who were the children of the covenant, uh, and uh, today they've named a town in the uh, Orange Free State after him called Lindley. I nearly got called there as a preacher uh, some years ago. Now, let us begin with John Knox. He, of course, is the pioneer Scottish Presbyterian reformer. And he says in his History of Scotland, in his works, We perceiving how Satan in his memories, the antichristes of our time, cruelly doth rage, seeking to downthring or to put down and to destroy the evangel of Christ and his congregation, ought, according to our bounden duty, to strive in our maestery's cause even unto the death, being certain of the victory in him, which being translated from Sc broad Scots into English means, we ought, according to our enslaved duty, to strive in the cause of our master, being certain of the victory in him. He also wrote, as cited by Wrigley's book and John Knox, that the first of our poor people, both of the nobility here is uh, wondrously great but it putteth me in comfort that Christ Jesus shall triumph for a space here in the north in Scotland and in the extreme parts of the earth John Knox was a man who was committed to world takeover and triumph and victory in the name of Jesus Christ it seems to be Knox who wrote the Scots Confession of 1560. And in Article 24, the Scots Confession says, quote, 
govern, political government must suppress all idolatry and superstition in her territory, as is to be seen in David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, and other kings. And in chapter 25, paragraph 2, uh, he ends this wonderful confession in these words from the book of Numbers, Arise, O Lord, and let thine enemies be confounded. Let them flee from thy presence that hate thy godly name. Give thy servant strength to speak thy word with boldness, and let all nations, let all nations cleave to the true knowledge of thee. Of course, even earlier, in 1532, the Synod of Bern in Switzerland, uh, they were laying down that the task of the magistrate is to repel error and leading astray and to abolish all blasphemy and public sins in religion and in life. 1536, the first Helvetic or Swiss Confession, Article 24 held, the magistrate should publish, should punish those Anabaptists who want to continue obdurately in their bickering and error to the disadvantage in leading astray of the church and should restrain and punish such persons. Notice, not all Anabaptists are to be punished, but those who cause commotion and breakdown of civil law and order. But it is especially Henry Bullinger uh, in his um, ancient faith and true religion as well as in his 50 years of sermon sermons who gives us the following. He says, There is much written also in the law concerning civil polity, ordinance, judgment, to live peaceable and well in city and land, of buying and selling, of war and peace, of inheritance and properties, of laws, um, matrimonial, of the punishment of the wicked, of the judgment and counsel, of lending and borrowing, etc. It is no news at all, and serveth altogether for the declaration of the six commandments of the second table of the Decalogue, such laws and rules to live in peace, in a civil order and virtue, have also the good holy fathers had from the beginning of the world written in their hearts by God himself. Now hath God also caused all to be comprehended in writing by Moses, to the intent that the world might have all more clearly and perfectly, and that no man might excuse himself of ignorance. The substance of God's judicial laws is not taken away or abolished, but the ordering and limitation of them is placed in the arbitrament of good Christian princes. Uh, but we see this even in the much milder Busser. Now, Busser, uh, initially of Strasbourg, was sometimes regarded by the said Bullinger as being a compromiser in matters religious. For example, uh, there were areas of uh, Germany uh, to which the Calvinists had to flee from Romanist persecution to the West, and there the handfuls of Calvinists would roll up in Lutheran churches that had uh, candles burning. And this upset many of the, of the Calvinists. And they would uh, 
right to Booser, and Booser said, oh, forget about the candles, they're not that important, grin and bear them, and enjoy worship with the Lutherans. And Bullinger was incensed by this compromise until Calvin stepped in and said, well, now, look here, they shouldn't light the, ca the candles, it's not right to have candles in churches, but please don't split our common uh, our Protestant front by starting an argument about candles. That was Calvin's advice. So, uh, Bucer, you see, was regarded as a compromiser in the liturgy by Billinger. But, I want you to see that uh, in his uh, book concerning the reign of Christ, and especially where he deals with penalties in 1550, which he directed to King Edward VI of England, he states that the civil degrees of the law of Moses in terms of the way and the circumstances in which they are described, nevertheless, as far as the substance and the proper end of these commandments are concerned, and especially those which enjoy the discipline, enjoying the discipline that is necessary for the whole commonwealth, whoever does not reckon that such commandments are to be conscientiously observed is certainly not attributing to God either supreme wisdom or a righteous care for our salvation. And then he says that the state which has been sanctified to God must apply capital punishment for such crimes as the Bible specifies, then refers to the Old Testament Mosaic laws. Now, Booster states that no one can describe an approach more equitable and wholesome to a commonwealth or a state than that which God describes in his law. He says that kings and princes who recognize that God has put them over his people are to follow most studiously his, that is God's, own method of punishing evildoers. Further, whoever does not reckon that such commandments are to be conscientiously observed, it's certainly not attributing to God either supreme wisdom or a righteous care for our salvation. He then goes through uh, the first nine commandments, all of them except thou shalt not covet, and points out that the state is to act and is to punish transgressions of the first nine commandments, which of course are overt acts, as opposed to the tenth commandment, which is only broken uh, internally and the breach of which is no concern of the state until it results in an overt detectable transgression of the other commandments whoever decides says Booster that misdeeds of impiety and wickedness are to be kept out or driven from the commonwealth of Christians by a more mitigated punishment than death that is where death is prescribed by the Bible necessarily makes himself wiser and more loving than God as regards the salvation of men. Interestingly, he points out that the penal punishments of the Mosaic judicial laws are to be regarded as part of the salvation of men. May the Lord grant the shepherds of his people the gifts of not wanting to seem wiser than God or more clement and humane so that they may at length see what a pleasing sacrifice it is to God and how necessary and how effective a remedy against the deadly diseases of mankind it is to impose just punishments on godless criminal 
and wicked man. With regard to theft, Luther points out that God has decreed only the penalty of restitution. But what shall we say, what shall we say is the reason that theft is dealt with so fiercely, whereas all too many wink at rape and adultery, at offenses against divine worship, at the distortion of the heavenly doctrine in which both the present and the eternal salvation of men is contained, and at blasphemy of the divine majesty. So too, just a year or two later, Bucer, of course, had a lot of contact with England. In 1553, the English Confession was drawn up, Article 36 of which teaches that the civil government has the task of restraining all those who gather together against it all evildoers. Calvin's own hand is probably to be seen in the French or Gallic Confession of 1559, Article 37 of which reads, We believe that it is the will of God that the world be ruled through laws and policemen, so that uh, there should be certain restraints uh, to hold back the confusion in the desires of the world. We also believe that God appointed kingdoms, republics, and all other sorts of governments, whether hereditary or otherwise, and that he himself is their author and wishes to be acknowledged as their author. For this reason, he has given the sword into the hands of the authorities to punish sins committed not only against the second, but also against the first table of the law of the Ten Commandments. Of course, we know that the Geneva Bible uh, was drawn up uh, by Knox, apparently, and William Whittingham, certainly, Whittingham being uh, the husband of uh, John Calvin, or Mrs. John Calvin's brother-in-law, and uh, that this was drawn up under the influence of Calvin and certainly Knox in Geneva for the benefit of the English-speaking exiles uh, persecuted at home in England who were temporarily resident in Geneva at that time. And in the Geneva Bible, where the various civil laws of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, are applied, quote, to us, unquote, us meaning we Christians, uh, we also see that the tendency of history is that Christ's kingdom should at length grow and fill the whole earth, which Daniel called it the great mountain. Uh, the Jews now remain, as it were, in death for lack of the gospel. But they and the Gentiles shall embrace Christ. The world shall be restored to a new life. The time shall come that the whole nation of the Jews, though not everyone particularly, shall be joined to the Church of Christ. Thus, the Geneva Bible and its comments on Daniel 2 and Romans 11. But a very important figure is the successor of Calvin uh, in Geneva, Theodore Beza. Beza believed eschatologically that the world will be restore, restored from death to life again at the time when the Jews shall also come and be called to the profession of the gospel. 
He then details for us the means by which this is to be brought about, or some of the means. He wrote a, a, a book that's very rare today called De Jure Magistratum, concerning the, uh, the, the rights of magistrates. Uh, this book, I believe, was only translated into English for the first time about uh, 25 years ago and published in Cape Town, South Africa, and endorsed with an introduction by Professor Andrew Murray, my old professor at the University of Cape Town and a grandson of the Andrew Murray, uh, the great South African preacher that I will deal with a little later. And uh, interestingly, that book of Beza, which uh, Beza worked up from the fourth book of Calvin's Institutes, De Jury Magistratum, inspired the French Huguenots, such as François Hopman, and especially Duplessis Mornay, to write his massive Vindicia Contra Tyrannus, which we need to know was found on George Washington's desk after he defeated the British in the American War of Independence. Don't let any liberals tell you the line that the American War of Independence was the result of deism. It was largely the result of Calvinism, Bayard and the French Huguenots and onto Washington's desk itself. Well, at any rate, um, <coughs> pardon me, this Beezer had quite a lot to say in respect of uh, the content of the calling of the magistrate to rule a country in a godly way. Now, Beezer clearly taught in a tract which he wrote that heretics should be punished by political government. Of course, Beezer, like the uh, Belgic Confession, distinguished between heretics and heretics. He was only claiming that uh, very serious heretics should be punished, namely such as would disturb law and order. It's clear that he was to some extent dependent upon the Hungarian Confession of Faith, uh, which I will deal with in just a moment. Hungary has never been a predominantly Calvinist country. Uh, today it is one-eighth Calvinist, seven-eighths Roman Catholic and under Roman Catholic control. There were more Calvinists there at the time of the Reformation than there are today, but always a minority. And so what we find a minority group in Hungary, the Calvinists saying there about the calling of the state is of particular interest to us today. At any rate, Beza, following the Hungarian confession, which I'll deal with a little later, taught that false prophets and uh, heretics should not be spared the sword, and by that not meaning necessarily the death penalty, but in some cases, indeed, if they were uh, treasonous and seditious people, but meaning that they should be subject to the restraint, in one way or another, of the civil magistrate. Now, uh, the reason why Beza took such a strong position against idolatry and uh, serious heresy is because he was very fearful of the rise of a general freedom of religion, granting freedom to atheists and uh, to other people who would oppose the Christian gospel. As a matter of fact, Beza wrote to Andreas Dudit, D-U-D-I-T-H, in 1580, that this freedom of religion for everyone is a doctrine of the devil. And in 1578, he replied to the Lutheran professor Jacob Andriai in Leipzig that political government is called upon by Almighty God to punish 
serious and seditious heretics even unto death if necessary. Of course, Beza was here referring to the kind of heresy that Servetus was guilty of. The kind of heresy which led to all kinds of processions and seditions and breakdown of law and order in the street. Uh, it was not Beza's desire uh, to punish all varieties of heret heretics without any distinctions. Uh, as a matter of fact, Beza advised a hard line Prince Jan of Nassau, whom you remember was a Calvinist prince of a predominantly Roman Catholic area, and advised him that the Roman Catholic mass may not be tolerated in public because of its idolatrous nature. He also said, <coughs> and this is important, Beza held that the political government should rather counteract uh, idolatry through the preaching of the gospel through the Protestant church rather than to have to resort to compulsive uh, statist measures. He insisted that uh, it's one thing to attempt to cram the right religion down the throat of other people which one may not do. It's quite another matter to live in an area which has never been Christianized or Calvinist, uh, and it's a different matter altogether uh, to have to be living in an area which is Calvinist, and then to permit error to creep in again and to decalvinize that area. He made these important distinctions. Now then, still on beta, let us now go to the Hungarian Confession of 1562, from which. Beza drew some uh, um, teaching and remember that the Hungarians were in constant contact with John Calvin who had a massive correspondence throughout Europe at this time. The Hungarian confession holds, quote, political government is to care for the maintenance of both tables of the law. It is to remove all of the idols and monks and nuns from those immoral convents which are truly brothels. Notice the Hungarian confession is not calling for the removal of all nuns, uh, for the removal of, of all nuns and all monks from all convents, but it is calling for the state to remove uh, all nuns and all monks from those uh, monasteries and convents which have degenerated into brothels. And surely this is the calling of the state. One of the callings of the state is to put down prostitution, whether it's found in the red light district or whether it takes place under color of whatever kind of religion. Uh, further, says the Hungarian Confession, the political government should punish corporally those heretics whose guilt has been proven and who refuse to yield to the truth. Again, the... Uh, the uh, violent, seditious kind of heresy. The church councils and Ambrose and Augustine teach that it is the task of princes to urge unbelievers to come to faith. Some would say no. It's no business of the state to urge people to be Christians. Well, I think it surely is. Not to compel them to become Christians at the point of the sword, but certainly to encourage them to become Christians. And further, says the Hungarian Confession, 
that the unholy and idolatrous religions be terminated. Doesn't quite tell us how. The Bohemian Confession, Article 16 and Paragraph 4 in what is now Czechoslovakia holds that political government should cast down all idolatry and tyranny of the Antichrist as much as it is in its power and to punish those heretics who disturb external peace and order. Again, a political motive. And this brings us to the great second Helvetic Confession of uh, 1565, I believe it is. Now, in uh, chapters 4 and 9, we are told that God in his mercy has permitted the powers of the intellect to remain, though differing greatly from what was in man before the fall. I want you to notice here the appeal to the cultural mandate. God commands us to cultivate our natural talents and meanwhile adds both gifts and success eschatological encouragement. It is obvious that we make no progress in all of the arts without God's blessing. Now listen to this. Children are to be brought up by the parents in the fear of the Lord. And parents are to provide for their children, remembering the saying of the Apostle, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, he has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. But especially the parents should teach their children honest trades or professions by which the children may support themselves. The parents should keep their children from idleness and in all things instill in them true faith in God, lest through a lack of confidence or too much security or faulty greed, the children become dissolute and achieve no success. If your child does not become a success, you would fault as a parent. See the idea of historical progress that the Swiss Confession is committed to. And isn't it interesting that the average Swiss today, even in this secularized age, earns at least $3,000 a year more than the average American? which is a country that is also massively under now eclipsing Puritan influence. And then the Swiss Confession concludes, it is most certain that those works which are done by parents in true faith by way of domestic duties and the management of their households or their economies, and who has got all the gold in Europe, in their banks, the Swiss, are in God's sight holy and truly good works. These works, and all that America would hear this message, these works of training your children to a godly profession and into economics and domestic economics, these works are no less pleasing to God than prayers, fasting, and almsgiving. Chapter 29. In other words, if you become a businessman and an economist to God's glory and train your child to want to make money to God's glory, this confession says that is just as godly as if you encourage your child to become a missionary or a preacher. Do you get the picture? There's no such a thing as full-time Christian service. Meaning by that, become a preacher and everything else is second class. And that's why Switzerland, tiny Switzerland, is the economic and the political 
powerhouse of Europe even today in the secularized age. Well now, uh, what about Article 30 of the same Second Swiss Confession? It now uh, directs its attention to the calling of the magistrate to encourage this advance of domestic economics. Following the examples of the holy kings of the Old Testament, the government must exterminate the lies and all superstitions with all godlessness and idolatry and protect God's church. Notice directed against lies and godlessness rather than directed against liars and ungodly people. It is therefore to use the sword of God against all criminals, rioters and blasphemers. It should also punish incorrigible heretics who are truly heretics, that is, the kind that stir up uh, sedition, and who do not cease to slander the majesty of God and to stir up the church of God and indeed to destroy it completely. Well, the same is the teaching of the Geneva Catechism, the Geneva Confession of Faith of 1536, the Confession for King Francis of 1557, the Confession of the Genevan Students of 1559, and so on and so forth. Now, <clears throat> there were two very influential Englishmen who, after the turn of the uh, century, went to settle in Holland. I refer, of course, to the great Cambridge theologian William Perkins, who became a Dutchman and a man who has a tremendous following in South Africa today, and the equally godly William Ames, or Amesius, who attained a tremendous following in Holland. Perkins, you may recall, uh, felt that the witch, once truly convicted, is to be punished with death, the highest degree of punishment, and that by the law, and that by the law of Moses, the equity of which is perpetual. And he did this not to have the pleasure of just wiping out witches and witchcraft, but so that the kingdom of God could be advanced and triumph eschatologically, for he writes elsewhere, <coughs> pardon me, namely in his fruitful dialogue concerning the end of the world, the Lord saith, all the nations should be blessed in Abraham. Hence I gather that the nations of the Jews shall be called and converted to the participation of this blessing when and how God knows but that it shall be done before the end of the world we know and then there is also a very important figure Peter Martyr now he was a professor at Strasbourg the perpetuator of the Geneva Bible and with Francis Junius uh, whose writings were first published in Dutch at the end of the 19th century by Abram Kuyper in the great Calvinist revival there, sponsored and improved the, the notes, the historic post-millennial notes to the Geneva Bible in subsequent editions during the first 50 years after it first appeared. This man, Peter Martyr, stated that the civil and the moral laws of the old people are abrogated not as regards their substance, but as regards the manner, the observations of the circumstances. In other words, we no longer have six uh, cities of refuge in Palestine to which involuntary manslaughterers may flee 
to escape the wrath of uh, the relatives of the person accidentally killed. And it would be wrong to set up those six cities in the same six places in Palestine. No, instead of that, we make a clear distinction between murder and manslaughter uh, in Switzerland or in the United States, and we arrange for their different treatment, and if necessary, we set up uh, six or even sixty cities in the United States where manslaughter is, can go and live until uh, the anger of the people they involuntarily killed dies down. So you see, there are changes uh, in the manner and the circumstance and the observance of these laws, but not as touching the substance. Martyr further maintained, in a well-ordered commonwealth, the crime of blasphemy against God ought to be punished with death. The crime of adultery ought to be punished with death. Nothing unusual there. Calvin held it, the great Dabney held it, and it's only in the last 110 years that we've begun to soften uh, these penalties and to apologize for the teaching not only of the Bible, but of the Calvinist fathers down to as late as 100 years ago. Then, uh, we are told by the same Peter Martyr, truly, if the Jews be in such great plenty converted unto Christ, and that with the commodity of the Gentiles, as we have before declared, then shall there remain much faith, which, which Christ, when he returneth unto us, shall find. He says, it's not a question of when the Son of Man comes back on the clouds, shall he find faith on the earth. He recognized that that was a reference of Jesus to 70 A.D., but he says at the time of Christ's second coming, he will indeed find much faith on the earth, because the Jews and the Gentiles will have been converted before that comes to pass. The Jews shall return or be converted again, and shall acknowledge their Messiah, and shall confirm the Gentiles. Indeed, according to almost all of the prophets, especially Isaiah, the happiness of the church will be great, which it has not yet attained to. But it is probable that it will then, on the conversion of the Jews, attain to it. Let us now go to that other great Englishman that settled in Holland and became a Dutchman, the great professor of Franeker, William Ames. Now he wrote a great book on the consciences, which I'm happy to have in my own possession. And uh, he says, let me give you a few quotations from Ames or Amesius' thinking in 1630, uh, 12 years after the decrees of Dort, um, 22 years before the founding of the colony of Calvinists in South Africa. I want you to see the background, uh, the historical flow. He asks, should heretics be punished by the civil magistrate? Heretics should be restrained from all godly people. The place and the office of the magistrates requires them to oppose vicious disturbers with the sword or public and external force when necessary, Romans 13. But if they are also public blasphemers and obstinate and unreasonable in their blasphemies, they can also receive the death penalty, Leviticus 24. The laws concerning the return of borrowed and owed goods, concerning just weights and measurements, concerning the wages of the laborer, and concerning many other similar things not expressed in the Ten Commandments, 
are not more judicial or less moral and natural than is the command, Thou shalt not steal, etc. The laws considered judicial, but whose forms exhibit no particularly Jewish character, belong to the affairs of other nations, and all participate in that moral and natural law common to all nations. Ames is also strong on restitution. He quotes Numbers 5, Luke 19, Exodus 22, and Deuteronomy 22. Right after the section in his work on the mutual duties of governments and subjects, he defends what he calls the fairness of the Mosaic laws which supplement the fifth commandment, and then refers to Exodus 22, 21, Leviticus 20, Matthew 15, Mark 7, Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 17. Ames also defends the fairness of some of the Mosaic laws belonging to the sixth commandment, namely Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, Exodus 21, again Deuteronomy 22, Exodus 23, 34, Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 7 and 17 and 19, Deuteronomy 12, Exodus 21, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, Numbers 35 again, Deuteronomy 19 again, Exodus 21. And then he discusses the laws of Moses relating to the seventh commandment, namely Deuteronomy 24, Numbers 5, Deuteronomy 21, 25 again, Leviticus 18, Numbers 36, Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 21, Leviticus 21, Deuteronomy 22. Under the Eighth Commandment, he deals with Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate, the Dominion Charter, and 2.15, and Exodus 21 and 22, and Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 25 again, uh, Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 15 and Psalm 8, linking up with the Dominion Charter. Finally, under public verdicts, the judge, the prosecutor, witnesses, the advocate and the accused, William Ames deals with Deuteronomy 17, 25, 13, 21, 22, 1, 16, and Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 16, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17, Leviticus 19, Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 19, etc., in the order in which he refers to them in this tremendous work. Well now, <clears throat> this brings us to the Synod of Dort. 1618 to 19. Uh, best known, of course, for as the time when the five points of Calvinism were drawn up and where 200 Arminianizing preachers of the Reformed churches were expelled. Now, let me say, these men who were expelled for heresy from the Reformed church were not put to death, they weren't imprisoned, they weren't stoned. Uh, they were merely put out of the church. And having been put out of the church, they were given perfect freedom to regroup as Arminian Christians. And they regrouped under the name of the Remonstrants. And they're still in Holland to this day. There was hardly any left of them. And their greatest representative today is the well-known ex-secretary general of the World Council of Churches, Fischer Toft. So you can see where Arminianism ends up. But the point is, they were denied membership in the Reformed Church. They were not denied the right in Holland at that time to propagate their uh, irregular and less consistent Christian views. I want to belabor that point. 
But the Synod of Dort not only adopted the five points of Calvinism, it also prescribed the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, referred to from 50 years earlier in the last uh, lecture, as the three documents that were to be the base of the Dutch churches and of the American Dutch churches and of the South African Dutch churches that proceeded from them. There are two portions of the decrees of Dort dealing with the five points of Calvinism which unfortunately are not usually printed in this document today, namely the first paragraph and the last paragraph. Now the last paragraph deals with absolute predestination and I'd recommend that you read it. But my concern here on the eschatology of victory is rather with the very first paragraph which is omitted. Let me read it to you. The Good Shepherd who with the greatest perseverance loves his flock for which he laid down his life has by his outstretched hand always bridled the rage of its persecutors at the right time and often in a wonderful way he has also uncovered and destroyed the crooked paths and the deceptive counsels of seducers our faithful savior has shown his grace Pre his gracious presence by a similar favor to the Church of Holland which was heavily persecuted for a good few years this church was after all redeemed from the tyranny of the Romish Antichrist and the terrible idolatry of the papacy by the mighty hand of God in the midst of the dangers of such a long and drawn out war she was frequently protected in a wonderful way and by unitedly holding fast to the true doctrine and discipline to the praise of her God, she greatly blossomed, which redounded to the admirable growth of the Republic and to the joy of the entire Reformed world. You yourself can say what kind of eschatology that is, or what kind of law doctrine that is. I think I know. We must close with the footnotes of the Dort Dutch Bible. Now, at the International Synod of Dort, which, by the way, was not an old Dutch thing, there were representatives there from England and Scotland and Germany and France and Belgium and Holland, although most other delegates were indeed Dutch. And at that International Synod, a commission of the General Assembly was appointed to undertake a new translation of the Bible into Dutch and to furnish it, please listen, with footnotes. Which footnotes would explain the meaning of the Dutch translation in terms of the theological understanding of the Dort Fathers? I have spent many months securing a very old Dutch Bible published in 1637. 18 years after the commission uh, was uh, established at Dort and uh, just some 15 years before this same Bible was taken to South Africa planting the colony as the Geneva Bible and not the King James was taken to the Mayflower by the American pilgrims to Massachusetts and to Connecticut and I've gone through all of the footnotes that are in any way of eschatological or law importance and I hope we'll be able to publish them soon I'm in the point of translating them into English now I don't believe that's ever been done at any rate 
Here are some of the footnotes of the Dort Dutch Bible. Now listen very carefully. Isaiah 2. The text, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and all nations shall flow into it, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. The footnote says, At the time of Christ's incarnation, the gospel would start to be preached throughout the whole world as the Christian church would be multiplied by the influx of the Gentiles of all nations by the law being preached by the church in all the world. Micah chapter 4, which as you know states basically the same teaching as what we've just read in Isaiah 2. The comment is, this is a prophecy of the future glory, expansion, and peaceful and blessed condition of the kingdom of the Messiah among the elect Jews and Gentiles. Daniel chapter 7, where we read of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven, the comment says, Christ, after finishing the work of our redemption, ascended back to heaven in order that he should sit at the right hand of his Father and receive from him dominion over all that could be mentioned from all peoples and nations and tongues of the entire world. Those commanded by God as saints shall capture and take possession of the holy and spiritual kingdom of Christ on earth. For the kingdom of Christ, established by the preaching of the Holy Gospel, shall be given or imparted to the godly, namely when Christ shall rule in the hearts of the godly among all nations. What's it saying? It's saying Daniel's seventh statement that the Son of Man comes on the cloud to the Ancient of Days is not referring at all to his second coming on the clouds from the Ancient of Days at the end of time. It's referring to Christ's ascension on the clouds back to heaven from which point he starts to rule and his kingdom expands until it uh, spreads over all nations. Matthew 5 verse 5 is very interesting. It requotes, of course, Psalm 37's statement that the meek shall inherit the earth. Now the Dort Dutch Bible says that Matthew 5 5 means that this promise indeed applies to the present life. In other words, Jesus was not saying the meek will inherit the earth only after they're dead and have gone to heaven and come back to the new earth. No, it's saying that if you are meek, you will inherit this earth here and now before you die. It refers back, says the Dort Bible, to Psalm 37 verse 11. And at Psalm 37 verse 11, the Dort Bible defines the word meek. It says, meek is not weak, but meek means those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and who humbly submit under his yoke in obedience to his commandments. In other words, if you're meek, you're not a mouse and you don't run away from a fight and say, Yahoo, Jesus loves me. But if you are meek, you submit to the law of God and you fight God's battles. And if you do that, you will inherit the earth and make progress here and now. Dort therefore declares that the meek that inherit the earth in Matthew 5 do so in this present life as a result of their submitting to God's commandments. A few verses later at Matthew 5.19 Dort tells us that whosoever shall break one of these least commandments shall not be acknowledged in the kingdom of heaven at all 
shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. For those whose righteousness or obedience to the commandments of God does not exceed that of the Pharisees will themselves no way even enter into Christ's kingdom. At Matthew 16 verse 18 uh, On this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Dort Bible points out that the Greek word katishisusin here means be sufficiently strong against. It then refers back to Genesis 22 and verse 17. And in Genesis 22 verse 17 God promises that Abram's seed, alias the church, shall take possession of the gates of their enemies and conquer them. In other words, Dort says, Dort does not say that uh, the church will take a terrible clobbering at the end of time, uh, but that the, the hell will not quite be able to completely destroy the church. No. Dort says that the church will prevail against the gates of hell and smash them in and bring them down. And this to be expected within history. At Romans 11, the Dort Dutch Bible predicts that the Jews will yet receive the gospel in great crowds and multitudes, just as richly as will the Gentiles, declares Dort. Very many Jews shall be converted in large multitudes after the fullness of the Gentiles or the multitudes of the nations have themselves entered into the church of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul predicts that the Lord shall consume the wicked man of sin with the spirit of his mouth. The Dort Dutch Bible says that this will occur, quote, through the pure preaching of the Holy Gospel, by which the Spirit works powerfully in the hearts of men. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul predicts that the Lord shall consume the wicked man, uh, 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 pardon me, Paul urges Christians to pray for kings and for all those who are in political authority. The Dort Dutch Bible encourages this on the ground that the true political authorities are preservers and protectors of both tables of the Ten Commandments. In Revelation 6 verse 2, John declares that Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer. And the Dort Dutch Bible explains that this means the pure preaching of the gospel through Christ's servants, whereby Christ, the King of Kings, spreads his rule throughout the entire world in the power of his Spirit and overcomes all resistance. At Revelation 12:17, the Dutch Bible comments that the two signs of real Christians are that they serve God according to his commandments and that they hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. At Revelation 14:12. It comments that to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are the two trademarks of a truly reformed Christian which distinguish him from those that worship the beast and its image. And at Revelation 17 verse 14 it declares that both the Lamb and they that are with him those who are chosen and faithful shall overcome the ten kings and the beast for through his elect believers Christ spreads his truth and saving doctrine throughout the world in spite of all violent resistance by means of many external victories which he will give to his own in the world and over the ten kings and the beast. All of this then, Calvin, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the decrees of Dort 
And the Dutch Bible are brought into South Africa 15 years later to establish the Calvinist colony at the southern tip of Africa. But we'll deal with that in the next lecture. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.